Today, our guest is Tamara Lechner. Tamara's commitment to improving proactive well-being on a global scale has led to her involvement with world leaders in contextual well-being measurement, positive psychology, and positive education. Today, we're talking to Tamara about her new book, The Happiness Reset, What to Do When Nothing Makes You Happy. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Business Bookshelf Podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. Like you, I'm a lifetime learner and find books one of the best ways to do this. The purpose of this podcast, then, is to interview authors of new business books, get insights into their thinking, lives, and businesses, all in a light-friendly manner. So I unfortunately have a feeling that 2021 is going to be as tough as 2020. Last week, I interviewed Jason Redman about how to cope with life's ambushes, and today I speak to Tamara Leshner about how to find happiness, even in ambushes like COVID. You'll see that Tamara was ambushed by something unexpected, a child with severe autism, and how she had to reevaluate everything in her life and find happiness. Tamara opened the Institute for Positive Education from Geelong Grammar School's first international office. And in 2019, she was appointed the inaugural director of the Center for Positive Education and has moved on to a technology startup called Creative Positive. Tamara has a passion for mindfulness, the science of habit formation and disrupting through patterns to promote growth. She has been a staff writer and happiness expert for Deepak Chopra's Center for many years. Today, we talked to Tamara about her new book, The Happiness Reset, What to Do When Nothing Makes You Happy. What to do when nothing makes you happy couples positive psychology intervention with days of the week to give structure and support to well-being in a highly individualized way. So welcome to the podcast, Tamara. Thank you for having me, Lance. It's fantastic to have you. Thank you so much. And Tamara, where am I speaking to you from today? So I am on the island of Victoria, British Columbia, just off the coast of Vancouver. Wow. And... Uh, my general question to get to know the guest is if I were to fly, get into a plane and fly off to go and meet with you, um, where would you take me for a day or an afternoon around where you live? Honestly, our island is, is pretty idyllic and beautiful. Uh, so I usually drive. I have a rule in my life, always go the pretty way, um, meaning that if I can be someplace where I see the mountain and the oceans, uh, that that's how I drive. And I would probably take you on a drive around the edges of our inner harbor where you would see seals. Um, sometimes we buy fish and feed those seals. It's a wow. really beautiful And how big is your island? Oh, that's a good question that I don't have a good answer. Oh, sorry. To is, it, is it really, is it quite big? Are there a few people that live on there? So in size, in landmass, it's a massive island. But okay. We all live very at the bottom of the island, crunched together very tightly. Um, and so there's not a lot of us living on the island. Um, <laughs> the, the city Victoria has, I think, about 400,000. Um, and so we're, we're not massive, but our landmass, like much of Canada, we have a lot of land and we only use a little tiny bit of it. Could you give us a brief overview of your career and leading up to your new startup called Creative Positive? Absolutely. So uh, there is no brief overview of my career, but what I can do is say, 
I ran a dance studio. I was in Disney movies and did film and television. Wow. That led me to all kinds of great opportunities. I've had my real estate license. I've worked in insurance. Uh, and then after parenting a child with autism, mm. uh, I came to this realization that somehow all of these things had in common, that I was following my curiosity and I seemed to be happier and perhaps a little bit more resilient um, than other women in my family who had all dealt with mental health challenges like anxiety and stress and depression. And I became really curious about what I had done that was different, um, that helped me to feel less anxious and less stressed when I was actually living a pretty high stress life with a kid who had some really mm. big challenges. So I became curious about what I was doing, what were the things that I did differently um, that helped me to be that way and backwards changed my way into the field of positive psychology, uh, which is recognizing that if we remove all of the negative mental health, we're still only at zero, that we're still not happy, we're still not thriving. And once I went down that rabbit hole and recognized, oh yeah, I'm, I'm mindful and I'm grateful and I get outside with nature and I have great fun times with friends and these are all simple things that everybody knows helps you to feel good. But if we don't figure out a way to form habits and prioritize doing these things, we aren't going to be as happy as we want. And, and so that's kind of my whole career has taken me eventually um, into schools because I believed, you know, why are we fixing broken adults when we can make healthy children? And yeah. so psychology led into positive education and social emotional learning and helping schools to do that. Um, but my new endeavor, Create Positive, answers that question of why is there such a gap between what schools teach and what humans need to be successful and happy in life? And really looking at, we've created this technology uh, that parents are scared of, that we have movies like The Social Dilemma telling us that technology and social media are bad and actually if you use technology positively so we coined the phrase positive technology you can take things that humans can't do easily like algorithms and matching technology and couple that with things that only humans can do like compassion and kindness and critical thinking and make everything work better and so we're in the very early phases of bringing this technology to schools to help them teach these lessons to kids. Wow. I, I've got two children myself, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. In fact, it's her birthday party tomorrow, which you're looking forward to. And so I'm really looking forward to, you know, following you and being, you know, seeing what Creative Positive does and just being involved, you know, with what you're doing. I really appreciate what you're doing. And, oh, thank you. It's a fun. It's a fun job. <laughs> <laughs> and Tamara, you, you've written a book called The Happiness Reset. So thank you for that. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the book, the purpose for writing it, and a brief overview of it? Absolutely. So I have spent time with my mentor Deepak Chopra. Um, mm. He's pretty well known, I think, but he often couples his ideas with days of the week. And so I started looking at these things that we know work to help people like gratitude and mindfulness, uh, 
playful time together, relationship building, having a sense of purpose and meaning. And I wondered if perhaps we would be better at forming habits around these things if we coupled them with the days of the week. Um, and so I'm, I've written for the Chopra Center for a while. I am a mindfulness teacher and practitioner, but I also recognize that some people aren't comfortable sitting in a, a seated meditation practice and that there's other ways that you can be mindful. And so I really started to think about how can I get out to people who think I'm, I'm not a meditator. I'm, I don't want to write a gratitude letter. How can I get to them some simple things that you can do in 10 seconds, 20 seconds to help you reset your baseline of happiness. And so the book really talks about, this is what science knows about happiness. These are the things we know that are needed to be happier, to reset your baseline happiness. Mm. One really interesting fact um, that I was floored when I learned about this research, they, they looked at people who had won the lottery and who had lost a spouse and they followed them over a year. And of course, when you win a lottery, your happiness starts at a certain point and then it goes way up because you just won the lottery. Yeah. Within a year, it goes back to where you started. The same is true if you lose a spouse. You, of course, have a massive dip in your subjective well-being, your scientific word for happiness um, uh. after the loss of a spouse. But in about a year, sometimes two years, you're right back to where you started. And so the reset is really about putting that set point at a higher level. And we do know that if you focus on continual, constant effort on lifting and elevating your baseline level that you can shift it to a higher baseline than where you started. And so I think that's what I kind of did personally, accidentally. Uh, and I didn't want everybody else to have to do it accidentally. So I put it into a coupling of on Monday, we talk about purpose and we think about the big purpose of why am I here? What do I need to do to be a happier person? On Tuesday, we talk about our relationships. We know scientifically that our relationships with other people contribute most to our resilience and our ability to get through tough times. Wednesday, we look at letting go because it's that inability to let go of the job we didn't get, the person we thought we loved who didn't love us back that keeps yeah. us from being happy and so that self-forgiveness and that ability just to let go of external expectations thursdays um we focus on self-knowledge and understanding how we're alike and how we're different um, to the people that we share the planet with for example i might show love through physical touch but if my spouse shows love through gifts then I might not receive that in the way that it's intended. And so really understanding how we're alike and how we're different so that we can get along better. Yeah, the love I, languages by Gary Chapman. Yeah, so big, right? And, and that's, these tools have pulled together science from great people like Gary Chapman. One of my favorite people um, is the work Gretchen Rubin has done about habit formation tendencies. And I always encourage people before they even start reading the book to find out how you form habits because some people do it more easily than others and some people need different tools. And if we don't know how to do that, we're not gonna become happier. So Friday the happiness is being playful and spending really fun time. 
Um, and that might be very different. For me, it might be a party. For somebody else, it might be knitting by the fire. Um, but having that scheduled so that you know it's going to happen. And then on Saturday, we focus on mindfulness. So that might be a walk on the beach, picking up pieces of sea glass, or for somebody else, it might be a swim, or it could be a seated meditation, a silent meditation. And then on Sundays, we go back to gratitude, which I think is probably the most well understood positive psychology intervention that there is. Um, and yet it deserves a day all of its own. <laughs> so no rest day, seven days. That's fantastic. Now yeah, and the book is designed for you to, to decide, okay, I'm going to do these every single day of the week. Or sure. some people go, you know, I'm already great with social connection, but I'm going to really focus on uh, self-knowledge. I don't really understand why I don't relate to some of the people that I work with or some of the mm. people in my family. Um, mm. And so it was my effort just to wrap this in simplicity because mm. they're, they're concepts. I think it's a lot like we all know that we need to exercise and eat better and sleep well. And yet most of us are not doing what we should or what we could to live our healthiest <laughs> life. This is for the mental health side of our life. If, if you could form these habits, uh, you would feel great. Absolutely. So tomorrow your book is called The Happiness Reset and you start the book by asking, you know, what is happiness? And so maybe we can, we can start there because I, I, I guess happiness could be something that's quite difficult to define. So what in your opinion is happiness? What should people strive for if they want to be happy? That's a great question and a really important one. And actually, it's one that I ask almost all of the researchers that I work with um, because there's so many different answers and I don't think that there's a right answer. But just by asking yourself the question, what is happiness for me? What am I aiming for? It helps you to know where you're going. For me personally, I think of happiness as almost a, a sense of peace. Um, mm. People is fairly unflappable. So my happiness doesn't look like the bubbles in the champagne. It's the really great wine underneath. So I'm not someone who's jumping up and down and clapping my hands and telling people that they should be more positive and should be more happy. And it, it doesn't express itself in excitement and enthusiasm and in joy and in jumping up and down. And the pictures that we see of people standing on a mountain with their arms up in the air, my happiness doesn't look like that. My happiness is when what you say and what you do are aligned in the person that you feel like you are on the inside, you're inside, you're really comfortable showing that person to the people who matter to you. And, and so it's really more about peace, mm. um, a really strong sense of knowing who you are and, and knowing the impact you want to make and, and feeling confident to do that. So I think confidence is a big part of it. Um, but also that absolute willingness to show up and make mistakes, to try things and, and mess up and be okay when things go wrong. Mm. For, for me, that's what happiness is about. Yes. And in your book, you've, you've got some descriptors for it. So like, uh, you know, belly laughing and cheats hurting and hearts open and amusement and gratitude and joy and love and pride and hope and inspiration and awe and amusement and all these kind of things that make a wrap up in some way of happiness. And Tamara, I was interviewing someone a couple of months ago and he said that he does smiling meditation. Have you ever heard of that? 
He, I have is... heard of smiling <laughs> meditation and I've heard of laughter yoga. Uh, I haven't tried either, yeah. but I imagine when I meditate, it is a smiling meditation because my, I worked really hard to not have a grumpy resting face. Um, <laughs> I, I the listeners of the podcast can't see me right now, but I have a face that has a smile on it most of the time. And my face didn't come this way. I, it was actually a learned and practiced thing. When my oldest daughter is severely autistic. And so when she was a little girl, she wouldn't make eye contact at all. And one of the teachers that I worked with said, you know, if she happens to glance up at you and sees the face that is your resting facial posture, she's not going to feel invited and welcomed and you want your face to tell her without words, your energy coming from your face to say, I can't wait for you to look at me. I can't wait to hear what you're going to say to me. Wow. And so I practiced really hard to have that be my new resting facial posture. And I think it's stuck now after many years, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's not, it's not something that was in my nature. It was something I had to practice. Sure. What a journey you've been through. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, so I want to ask you about purpose because you mentioned that in your days of the week. And it, it's a very, a very, very hot topic at the moment, like purpose for organizations, purpose for people. So what would you say the role of purpose has in happiness or in, in a person's life? I love that question. And I think of purpose. Um, first of all, I think there's two types. So there's that big, like, why am I here? The big purpose. And then there's intention of, am I living really intentionally? Am I asking myself why I make the choices that I make? And the two are really aligned, but those are almost like the rudder for your sailboat. And, and I often say when I'm teaching, when faced with two equally good choices, um, maybe around who you're going to date, where you're going to live, which job you're going to choose, your purpose will be that inner GPS that helps you to decide which of these two good choices is the right choice. Mm. Um, I think because there's been so much in the media about a purpose-driven business and a purpose-driven life, it can almost feel like we're looking for something that's external, like, oh, I need to go meditate for two months in France to discover what my deep purpose is. And it's going <laughs> to bubbling up from inside of me at some point. But I think it's actually a lot simpler than that. And if we look at the choices we've made throughout our life, the things that fill our cup, the, the places and the people that energize us, they're real clues to our, our deeper purpose. And our body sends us physical signs of comfort or discomfort when we're on that path or off of that path. Uh, and so when I feel a sense of deep connection to my purpose, sometimes I don't have the words to say, okay, my purpose is X, Y, Z, but I do have this sense of this feels right. Uh, this, uh, this is energizing. It feels like I'm being pulled towards something, not like I'm having to pull to get there. Um, and so I think that takes practice. That is part of the, the secret sauce of meditation and reflection. I certainly wasn't connected to that inner GPS um, when I was younger. It takes time and effort to listen and hear that. 
Um, I'm jealous of people who are born knowing their purpose. I want to be a surgeon and starting at seven years old, every Halloween costume is doctor and everything that they do in school has, this is where <laughs> I'm going. I never had that. Um, and I think both are great, but everybody has a purpose and it's, well, it's well, I, I, you know, I was discussing with my wife, and I think you're absolutely right, because I don't think too many people have a specific purpose. Like, I'm, in, I'm very involved in the whole purpose industry and stuff like that, and yet I personally don't really know my purpose. And then my wife is doing a course that involves purpose, and she said to me, if only I knew what my purpose was. And then, and then I look at my two daughters, and I think, well, that's probably my purpose, you know, to be a good father, to be a good husband, to provide for them, to be a good role model in the world, to, you know, do the best I can. Perhaps that's enough of a purpose to live by. I think it's more than enough. And, and that's where society and social media have maybe gotten it wrong. Um, my purpose is deeply tied to how people feel after they've spent time with me. And I hope that I provide a little bit of light that either inspires them to step towards that light or they, they see reflected in that, oh yeah, that's just like me. And, and, and so I really think my purpose is about this energetic connection, not to sound too woo-woo, uh, that, <laughs> that I have with people who I spend time with. And of course, I may have intentions that are different than that. I may have intentions about building a company that impacts the way that education happens. But I don't know that that's my purpose. And it's certainly not my purpose in this moment right now, connecting with you. Mm. And, and so I think sometimes we make purpose too hard. When you watch a group of children playing and they all run together one way and then they all pick up sticks and go this way, they're never sitting down going, well, why am I doing that? Is this important to be open in my life? There's <laughs> yes. in their curiosity. And I think when we can get back to following our, our joy and our curiosity, um, we're much more connected to our purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I fully agree with that. Now, Tamara, your Sunday is all about gratitude or your day is Sunday day. Why, mm -hmm. um, why is gratitude so important? What role does gratitude play in a person's life and your life? Another great question. Um, many of the practitioners in, in the research of well-being will say that gratitude is, is kind of the meta practice. It's the one you come back to if you can't, if you don't have anything else, at least we can always find something to be grateful for. And it, it might just be, um, I can uh, give you an example from my father who is, is probably the least reflective uh, he doesn't reflect on his life very much at all. And yet if I say to him, how are you doing today, dad? He'll always say, I'm doing great. I woke up on the green side. And what mm. he means by that is he's above the grass, not below it. And so he's alive and life is good. And, and that's a type of gratitude. And, and so I think that even in our worst moments, there is gratitude. Again, coming back to my autistic daughter, I had a real lesson um i was feeling pretty sorry for myself she is is quite severe she can be violent and i was having one of those days many years back where i was doing the why me why did i get this kid mm. and i met a woman uh that same day who had two autistic children 
who were equally as profoundly disabled as my daughter. And one of them was going through chemotherapy for a brain tumor. My goodness. I could be thankful that my daughter was healthy and that I didn't have to take her for chemotherapy. And it sounds like a horrible thing to be grateful for, but there's always, always something that you can find to be grateful for. Running water, ice, the sun, the moon, the stars, that you took a breath. And so it is that thing that helps to pull us out of a downward emotional spiral. But I think that there's also, there's two parts of gratitude. It can be a character strength of yours that, that you use, that you pull it out like a tool and remind yourself to be grateful. But it can also be an underlying aspect of who you are, that, that you're just a grateful person, that, that you receive with thanks every opportunity that you're afforded. And it seems to me that the people who are really blessed are also really thankful. If you look at the Oprahs of the world, the, we hear a lot of gratitude from these people. Those two things seem to be part of um, this energetic ebb and flow that when I'm grateful for the things that I already have, when I don't feel like I deserve them, when I feel real gratitude for the things in my life, suddenly the floodgates open and there's more of those things. Sure. Uh, this morning I was writing sort of a, a document around a major change in my life uh, and maybe looking back at 2020. And one of, the, one of the quotes I found about 2020, maybe it's got to do with gratitude in a small way, is, uh, and the quote goes, good, waking up every day, bad, in 2020. <laughs> and tomorrow, That's the Friday that you're, you're doing the Friday happiness habit, the playful, the humor. Uh, <laughs> and tomorrow, how old is your daughter now? And, and did you go and have you had any more children since then? So I have four children. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, and, and some days that's four too many. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my eldest daughter is the one with autism and she's 24 now. Wow. I have a 22 year old who's in law school. I have a 17 year old who is in his final year of high school. And I have a 14 year old who will be entering high school this year. Awesome. Fantastic. Girls, two boys, crazy house. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tamara, can you you mentioned in the introduction that you've just joined a startup called Creative Positive? Is there? Could you give us a little bit? And I know it's a work in progress, etc. Could you give us a little bit more of a taste about what it'll be and what it'll offer? I would love to because. I've come together with a global group that includes psychologists and educational experts and organizational experts and business developers. Uh, and we really are looking at a question that I keep hearing that we know what to do. Uh, we know what is needed for kids to thrive in school, adults to thrive in life, for, for our society to be doing better than we are. And yet our systems like school and hospitals and government are kind of stuck in some old school patterns. And so our really big hope is to use technology in a positive way to impact human learning. And so human learning can be not so much about learning things that you can Google in 10 seconds, not memorizing like 
I did in school because we don't need that anymore. What the skills we know are needed for the next generation are flexibility and resilience and decision-making and critical thinking. And mm. so our goal as a company, as an organization is to start in schools and help teachers who teachers didn't learn these skills. And so now we're asking them to impart these skills to the next generation, but they haven't really learned them themselves. And so we've scaled up a way to help whole schools take on board these new expectations of teaching these skills, but then using technology to help us. A lot of times when I work with schools, the first thing I'm told is that the kids aren't allowed to have their phones out. And, and I think that's ridiculous because kids are growing up in a world where social media and technology are just part of the water that these little fish swim in. And we mm. can't to get out of the water. It, it is the way they live. So instead we need to help them understand how to put boundaries around the good ways to use it, the, the ways that help you to focus and help you to do your work more quickly, more easily, um, and to make choices around how they're getting information. But also what if we were using that technology to increase our human skills, those, those human skills that computers can't have. And, and so we see it as a, as a real way to bring together this human learning and this machine learning in a way that hopefully will disrupt schools because mm. we think schools are the perfect place for skills of living a good life to be taught in a foundational way. And we know that we need a big shift away from the ideas of discipline and kind of the sorting hat that school is right now um, that says, yeah, you are on the track for university and you're not, and you're good at maths and you're not. And, and we don't think that's okay. We, we think that when students are curious and focused, they have so much more potential um, when we're not telling them what their potential is as adults. And so it's a big goal. Uh, we're in the early phases of building this app that will have direct feedback with the users. So the students and the teachers and the, the school leadership teams and the parents to say, yeah, we've seen a real difference. Like we, we notice better behavior. We notice higher academics. This is working. This isn't rather than us as a group of researchers saying you need to learn vulnerability because Brene Brown did an awesome talk on vulnerability and now we all think it's awesome. We know it's awesome, but that looks different in the, the type of vulnerability I can have as a woman of my age is very different than I would have been able to have when I was 16 and I didn't really know who I was. And so we are hoping that technology will be kind of that secret sauce that, that makes all of this work come together and be an answer to what's really needed right now for our world where mental health is spiraling out of control and our climate and our migration between countries, like all of these things are very broken. And hopefully if we start with those human skills, we'll be able to fix all of these problems. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said earlier, I've got two daughters, uh, six and eight. And, you know, I have absolutely no idea what world they'll go into once they finish school. Because it's like, you know, 10 to 12 years time. And but I, what I do know is that, you know, the maths, the science, the history, the geography, all those type of things will probably be less important even than it is today. 
and the the actual creativeness, the ability to think, the ability to you know to sort things out, to come up with creative solutions, will be even more important than they are uh, now. So that as a parent, I I can't really rely on school to do that for me. I need to be active in my daughter's lives to teach them those skills, so that they, when they leave school and they go to whatever university or tertiary education is when it is at that time that they've got those and go into the work environment whatever it is then um, they'll have those kind of abilities to be able to you know quickly take on things learn unlearn learn creatively solve problems etc that's what I'm trying to equip them to do absolutely and that's I think really the crux of why our team has come together many so we've got uh, software developers we've got organizational people and the thing we all have in common is either school didn't work for us as individuals or it hasn't worked really well for our children mm. and we know there's this this weird thing that teachers want to be powerful guiding forces in students' lives and students want to learn. And it's so strange to me that there's this disconnection that happens that between the very early years of school when kids are excited and enthusiastic and somewhere along the way that gets broken. And I hope that by putting these foundational skills of relationship and compassion and understanding one another and understanding that when we see behaviors out of children, it's usually because they have some unmet, unmet need or something that's going wrong emotionally, psychologically, relationship-wise, that if we fix that first, the learning will flow. Uh, and so my, my sincere hope is that in 10 years, we will not only be meeting the needs of the learners, we'll be meeting the needs of the teachers who who are frustrated and tired because the job that they thought they signed up for isn't really what they're doing right now. Um, and as parents, I agree with you that it's, it's partly our job, uh, but I don't know very many parents who have great trust in their school system. Even I've chosen a wonderful private school for my kids and I still see a lot of problems. I still am constantly needing to be there to advocate. And wouldn't it be great if as a village, we were raising kids in a way that we all felt, yeah, I'm totally on board for this. This is great. They see my child's strengths that don't have to be the same as all of the other kids' strengths. And they're leading them towards becoming their best self. And I, I sure wish that our schools look like that. Absolutely. Uh, just on a side, before we wrap up this interview, I just want to ask you quickly about Deepak Chopra. You mentioned him in the introduction and, and as part of you know, your journey. And you're a certified primordial sound meditation instructor. Is that something you still do today? And what is it? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so I am. Um, and every once in a while, somebody will ask me to teach them. And I do. But it's certainly not. It's not my full-time gig. So mm. meditation, there's lots of different types. Um, primordial sound meditation isn't well known. One that is very similar and many of your listeners may have heard of is transcendental meditation. Okay. And really what it means to have a transcendental meditation or a primordial sound meditation is simply that while you meditate, you are repeating to yourself a mantra and a mantra is just an anchor, a set of words 
um, that you repeat again and again in your head. So with the transcendental meditation, the words that you repeat are about yourself, where you were born. Um, they come based on astrology and all kinds of things I don't really understand deeply. Um, and they also are to do with your teacher. And so you'd be given as a student a small phrase to repeat again and again to help anchor you out of your thinking brain and into your meditating brain. In primordial sound, the only difference between transcendental meditation and primordial sound is the person who teaches you is not considered in primordial sound. So the sounds that you receive are based on what country you were born in, what date and year you were born, and they are basically you're given what many believe is the sound the universe was making when you came from the unmanifest to the manifest when you were born. Uh, for me, honestly, it's, it's something that anchors me away from that monkey mind because my mind, like many people's, is always going hundred miles a minute and I can come back to this phrase of words that make no sense to me whatsoever and it pulls me away from that thinking mind and that's how I use it and that's how I tell students to use it um, and it's a great tool it's a powerful tool but it's not the only tool in the toolbox any any type of meditation that works for someone uh, is the perfectly good choice for them awesome thank you for telling us about that and um, so tomorrow I I'm going to have your website, I believe it's a work in progress, in the show notes. By the time uh, this podcast goes live, people can, will be able to go and have a look at the Creative Positive and all the different details. And then you active on LinkedIn. So I'll have your details on LinkedIn. And I really just want to thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for your book, The Happiness Reset, What to Do When Nothing Makes You Happy. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking to you on this Friday night. Thank you so much, Lance. I've also enjoyed our conversation and I hope that you feel a little happier after our time together. <laughs> I do. Thank you very much. Uh, and I hope you, the listener, have found this as interesting and useful as I did. And um, if you'd like to contact me, as, as I said, I'll have all of tomorrow's details in the show notes. If you want to contact me, then please do. My email is lance at ideastorm.ca.za and website www.ideastorm.ca.za. So until next time, Goodbye. Thank you so much, Tamara. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lance. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.